I'm Leanne Lord, and this is Human Story. When he isn't playing drums and guitar with the Philadelphia Funk Authority or hosting a skeptic convention, George Robb spends an unhealthy amount of time thinking about the end of the world. And he's pretty sure we've got it all wrong. Not just the zombies, but the role fear would play both before and after the collapse of civilization. When the zombie apocalypse happens, I'm probably screwed. Oh, sure. I want to imagine myself madly swinging a pair of double-bladed end-to-end super katanas while gazing through acid-spitting sunglasses and sporting shoes made out of chainsaws, all while kicking necrotic tons of zombified ass or zass. But in all likelihood, I'll be among the first to somehow trip over a lawn chair and get locked in a shipping container full of two dozen freshly undead and non-vaccinated Mary Kay consultants. The closest I'd ever get to being anything like Michonne would be while desperately pulling a macrame throw rug over my head in the midst of a vain attempt to hide from a phalanx of face-eating walkers. We can't all be Daryl. In fact, pretty much nobody can be Daryl. I doubt that even the guy that plays Daryl could be Daryl. But that being said, I wonder if the end of the world would really go down the way it's normally portrayed in fiction. Almost a century of cinema and television has really informed our assumptions about what the breakdown of society would look like, regardless of whatever may be causing said breakdown. We don't even necessarily need to be talking about the dead rising and feasting on the appendices of librarians. One decent and frighteningly far from impossible solar event like a GRB or gamma ray burst could easily destroy the electrical grid of the entire planet. And hey, once electricity goes, ain't nobody going to be Netflix and chillin' squat. In most ways, it's obvious and easy to presume that within days of the power framework breaking down, public utilities would cease to utilitate, hospitals would eventually stop hospitaling, and that would lead to police and government agencies getting overrun which would result in the inevitable truth of no more open poetry slams or Taco Tuesdays anywhere. You know, sheer chaos. We've all seen the movies. Within just a few days of everything going pear-shaped, folks are wearing football pads all the time and leather becomes so de rigueur that it just barely retains its homoerotic overtones. I mean, seriously, Lord Humongous has the most fabulous wardrobe department ever. Sister can sport a hockey mask and a bikini bottom like nobody's business. Don't just walk away. Strut. Anyway, in films and other apoco-fiction, Tribes quickly form, each usually being led by some overbearing and loud individual who has figured out a way to play to the basest desires and needs of one particular subsection of the masses, many of whom are just scared and desperate and searching for any kind of leadership. 
Their fear is used unwittingly against them, and all kinds of heinous behavior is justified and overlooked, so long as said leader blatantly and unapologetically manages to continually promise future stability and prosperity, regardless of how unrealistic, unachievable, and impossible delivering on those promises might be. Good thing that kind of stuff doesn't happen in real life, right? Which, if you allow me the tangent, does beg the question, is fear a good motivator? Fear for safety, fear for the future, fear of change, fear of loss, even fear of fear. Of all the things that we learn, and of all the ways that we act and behave, how many of them are motivated by being afraid? And of those things that are motivated by being afraid, how well does that motivation actually work? When we're kids, we're taught to look both ways before crossing the street. I'm trying to remember if I was afraid of what might happen, or if I was informed of what might happen. I don't think the potential visage of my mangled child corpse was proffered to me as a reason to follow road safety, but it might have been. Hard to remember. My mind was mostly occupied with wondering when and where I'd finally get to meet the six million dollar man. Still waiting, by the way. Did traffic safety sink in because I was scared that an accident might happen? Or did it sink in because I was empowered with the understanding that little Geo versus a 77 Mercury Monarch is empirically not going to end well? And is there a difference? I think it was the information that drove me, not the emotion even if I was still too young to really understand either. Maybe it has to be somewhat fear-based when you're younger, but to me that feels, I don't know, kind of icky. I don't think that parents tend to much follow the old convention of using scary folklore to teach children proper behavioral practices anymore. Or at least I think it's pretty universally frowned upon. Not being a parent, I'm less qualified to comment on child-rearing than John Wayne Gacy's clown makeup wholesaler, but still... I think that one doesn't really want one's daughter getting ready for bed wholly because she thinks that either the soul eaters will suck her life essence out through her face if she's not asleep by 8pm, or some homunculean version of an all-American doll is going to scream Paul Anka tunes at her if she's not under the covers by sundown. I assume that kind of thing is just bad parenting, right? But is that any worse than telling a kid that they need to stay nearby when they're at the park, or else some scary stranger in a panel van might drive up and snatch them away and force them to watch episodes from the eighth season of Who's the Boss? I don't know. I do know that Yoda said, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Pretty accurate seems does that. And yet, fear of failure might be a great motivator. Though there are plenty of people that'll say that being scared of failure tends to immobilize individuals as opposed to inspiring them. Very often, we can be so intimidated by a task that we never even afford ourselves the opportunity to fail by not ever starting. Weird. What has struck me, however, 
often while listening to the frothing anxiety of partisan talk radio, or the terror-based political ramblings of regular Joes who just happen to have law degrees from Harvard and multi-million dollar cable news contracts, is I think we tend to make rather poor choices when we're afraid. Like, really poor. When we make decisions that are founded more by in-the-moment reactive anger and base self-preservation, we tend to lose sight of not only right and wrong, but of our own convictions. That kind of reactive action might be a fantastic game plan on the savanna where fear-based motivation prevents you from being, oh, I don't know, eaten. But in a complex societal world full of action and consequence, Reacting from fear tends to bring out the worst and shortest-term kind of thinking and acting. Those actions often have repercussions that could have been avoided or at least considered with calmer thought. Shouldn't we know that about ourselves? Shouldn't we be proud of our ability to take a moment and override the limbic system and not react purely in fear, especially in situations where the threat is not immediate but more conceptual? Maybe that's it. The more that a dangerous or potentially harming idea or event becomes concrete, i.e. a thing that can physically hurt you in the moment, the more fear should act as a motivator in determining what actions are appropriate. For example, What should you do if you're in the woods and you see a huge brown bear running straight at you while wearing a bib with your picture on it? Well, scream a full-voiced impression of Ethel Merman and run away as fast and as far as you possibly can. What should you do if you're walking through Central Park and you see two men kissing? Well, think about why you feel weird and determine how much their endearment is really affecting your existence. I know this is an incredible oversimplification, but so is the plot to Avatar, and that thing made like $2 billion, so... And I know, it depends what kind of bear it is before you run or play dead, but you get the point. I just hope, like really, really hope, that when people's fear buttons are pushed, they can realize that historically, very little good comes from it. Fear buttons, by the way, are located just below your pleasure lever. But listen, in the first half of the 20th century, polio was a crippling disease that was affecting tens of thousands of children, and by the 1940s, it had developed into what American historian William O'Neill called the most serious and frightening public health problem of the post-war era. Victims were quarantined, so much so that in some instances, parents couldn't even attend the funerals of their own children. There was a tremendous amount of fear influencing the actions of those yet unaffected by the disease. What happened, however, was a realization that being scared and worried did little good. That particular quarantine was fruitless, and that maybe a better course of action was a unified attempt to find a vaccine and a cure. The National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis was set up, and the March of Dimes fundraising program was started. Over 100 million people donated money to the March of Dimes, and over 7 million people donated their time and labor. 
It can be argued that these two proactive and positive measures helped Jonas Salk and his researchers eventually discover the vaccine for polio. There was a point where Salk's research felt so unproductive, he considered giving up his work. Apparently, he sat in a park one day, exhausted and feeling defeated, debating whether to continue his research. But as he watched children running around and playing on healthy legs, he realized his awesome responsibility to future generations. He decided right then and there to return to the lab and work even harder than he had been working before. I don't think people gave to the March of Dimes out of fear. I don't think Salk went back to work with a renewed vigor and subsequently scienced his tail off because he was scared. I think there was a universal realization of the importance of the project, an understanding of the seriousness of the problem, and a comprehensive rational decision to distribute whatever resources were available to solve the task at hand. No banning, no running away, no blame and no attempts at feeding the base and darker portions of our animal brains. Those working on the problem eventually succeeded beyond anyone's expectations and virtually eradicated the polio virus. Now compare all that to the positively brain-heave-inducing reaction of a disturbingly large percentage of people today and the development of the COVID vaccine. Those ironically chanting about not wanting to live in fear are actually spewing fully flaming zeppelinfuls of aversion, distress, anxiety, and untrustfulness. You know, fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Suffering leads to great ratings. Wouldn't it be something to once again see the kind of a unified, rational approach to problem solving that resulted in the polio vaccine? Which brings me back round to my initial point. I really do wonder more than ever if the end of the world would go down the way it's normally portrayed in fiction. Maybe, and just hear me out for a sec, maybe it wouldn't be that bad. The wonderful Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers to his friends, had an excellent piece of advice he would give to parents who were concerned about informing their young children about tragedies. Whenever some horrible piece of news involving a plane crash, an explosion, or some other disaster would be unavoidable and come on the news, Mr. Rogers would tell parents to do what his mother used to tell him to do, which was to, quote, always look for the helpers. He said this would assist in calming and assuring kids by letting them know that even in the worst of times, there's always someone trying to aid and help. He said that whenever his mom pointed this out, he, quote, came to see that the world is full of doctors and nurses, police and firemen, volunteers, neighbors and friends who are ready to jump in and help when things go wrong. Indeed. Regardless of political affiliation, educational background, or demographic differences, a significant portion of humanity jumps in to help when things go wrong, often right there in the moment. Now, this isn't true of everyone, and there are days where this just doesn't feel true, but trust me, it is. It's the corollary to the fighting the bear scenario. Very often, 
when placed in a potentially heroic or helpful situation, especially a precarious situation, those being helpful or heroic will speak of a type of autopilot just engaging. It's like eons of evolutionarily encouraged behavior switch on and compel us to secure the tribe so that the success of the altruistic behavior can ensure collective survival in the mean. You know, you take one for the team. I personally have witnessed enough instances of the brightest and best parts of the human animal expressing itself during calamities that I truly believe even in the darkest of times, the helpers would outnumber the herders. I don't think I'm being a Pollyanna, and I don't think that I'm just hoping for the best. I can remember walking through a pitch-black Queens, New York in the middle of the Northeast blackout of 2003, and being astounded by how well everyone was not only behaving, but helping each other and getting along through this shared challenge. There are historic examples from as early as the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, all the way up to 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina, where spontaneous altruism, self-organization, and mutual aid all calmly arose from individuals and not institutions. There's even a field of study called disaster sociology that deals with this very subject. It seems that given the option, most people will band together and help one another munch through whatever poop sandwich is being fed them. Sure, there are instances of folks behaving poorly but those seem to be incidental. And even during those times, there are groups that arise to protect, manage, help, and quell the situation. Just think about the first few weeks of the COVID lockdowns before the pundits and politicians began to play on the fears and worst ghosts of our nature. There really was a collective understanding and an attempt to work together. I remember marveling at all the empty parking spaces in my city as people were staying home and thinking how lovely it is that folks are actually listening to the experts who are calmly trying to follow what data they have as best as they can while attempting to mitigate the situation. Forget about just telling kids to look for the helpers. It's just good advice in general. And maybe it can even revive one's sense of hope and humanity in the darkest of times. Look for the helpers, listen to the experts, and limit acting out of fear. Who knows how long this kind of positive societal intervention could last if and when the infrastructure of civilization collapses. I would bet, however, on things going much better for humanity in real life than they did for humanity in that movie Battle Truck, even though that film is awesome. Oh, no, wait, it's not awesome. I was thinking of On the Waterfront. Sorry. Here's to hoping your neighbors hide you in their attic if and when necessary. Or at the very least, if they do become some kind of sentient necrotic undead, they don't try to eat your face. Take what you can. George Robb is the host of the Geologic Podcast, a weekly comedy music and interview show with not a hint of geology in it. His day job is playing drums, guitar, bass, and piano, and composing music for the Philadelphia Funk Authority and the Geologic Orchestra. He lives in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. That was episode three of Human Story, a podcast exploring the human experience from a secular point of view, one story at a time. 
Each episode, I'll bring you a different storyteller, one secular person sharing what it's like to be one of 7 billion living, feeling, thinking human creatures temporarily awake on a minor planet. Next time, we'll hear author and columnist Hemet Mehta interview Autumn of the YouTube channel Notes from Autumn. So what's your story? If you have a secular perspective, a good story, and a gift for telling it, go to onlysky.media slash submissions to submit an idea for an episode of your own. We're especially interested in post-religious stories, stories about life after you're done grappling with religion. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to live in your head and see the world through your eyes. That's onlysky.media slash submissions. Human Story is a production of Only Sky Media, a home for journalism, storytelling, and opinion, serving the growing community of the religiously unaffiliated. Visit us online and add your voice to the conversation at onlysky.media. And subscribe to the Human Story podcast on the service of your choice. Thanks for listening. I'm Leanne Lord. See you next time for Human Story.